0: How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Bobby Benson to the Philacrosophy podcast. Bobby was a longtime offensive coordinator and assistant coach at Johns Hopkins, I think 19 years, uh, was a three-time All-American at Hopkins, one of only two players to lead the Blue Jays in goals for four years. And um, Bobby also had stints at UMBC and Loyola before he made his way back to Homewood. Bobby, really fired up to have you on the show. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Jamie. I'm excited to talk some lacrosse uh, and uh, and get started. No doubt.
0: Well, and also, uh, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but uh, Bobby and I are going to join forces on a few projects around the JM3 coaches training and working with JM3 athletes. And um, we will talk about that a little bit later. But uh, to start, like we normally do, um, I would love to hear about your lacrosse journey.
1: Yeah, well, I'm really excited to get into the JM3 down the road um, and work with those athletes, so uh, look forward to talking about that, but to start with my journey, um, I was one of those lacrosse sticks in the crib uh, babies. My dad and my uncle both played uh, at UMBC, and I believe my dad's still like third all-time in goals there or something, and I think my uncle was very good. Um, so I grew up around lacrosse. I grew up with lacrosse. Um, Grew up playing lacrosse. My dad's probably the one that taught me the most about lacrosse. Um, Went to high school at McDonough school where I played for Jake Reed. Um, It was a really awesome experience for me. Uh, My first year at McDonough, uh, we started three freshmen in the MIAA A conference on attack. We were 0 and 10 in the conference um, and we were the doormat of the league. And my senior year, 1999, we went on to win the MIAA championship and it was, part of what Jake Reed built there. And it's been awesome to follow McDonald Lacrosse since. And now Andy Hilgarten is there doing a great job, which is awesome. So that's uh, really cool. And then ended up at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, got to play there for four years, first with Coach Hoss. And then with uh, Dave Petromalis, Seth Tierney, Bill Dwan. Uh, really great time to be at Hopkins. I had a wonderful experience there. Didn't win a championship as a player. Uh, but played in three final fours and, uh, had a blast. Um, after that, I was very fortunate that coach Zimmerman hired me right out of college to work at UMBC and coach Zimmerman is a hall of fame coach for a reason. And I got to learn a ton from him. Uh, it was awesome working with him. UMBC was a great spot to be. They really cared about lacrosse. Um, got to work with Brendan Mundorf, Drew Westervelt, uh, with, uh some lacrosse legends that, uh, did a great job there. Terry Kimminer, are different guys that played in the professional leagues. Um, and, and that was just a wonderful experience. Um, then I went to Loyola for one year in 2006, Charlie Toomey's first year uh, at Loyola. And Charlie Toomey, Matt Dewan, and Steve vagueness are still there. Um, obviously they're with Mark Van Arsdale now, um, but they are some of the greatest guys in lacrosse. And I got to learn a ton from them as well. Um, Joe Boylan was the athletic director at the time, and I was so fortunate to, you know, work with Joe Boylan and Tom Calder, um, two probably throwback athletic directors that were, you know, great men and uh, awesome leaders. Um, So I spent one year at Loyola, um, and again, that was just an awesome place for lacrosse. They really cared about the sport, and, uh, and it was important there, and the coaching staff and the administration was terrific. Um, And then I went to Hopkins for 14 years at Hopkins with coach Petra Mahler and coach Duan, And uh, it was a great 14 years. It was a great time to be at Hopkins. Um, You know, President Brody and Jerry Schneidman really drove that ship in the right direction. And uh, I was fortunate to, you know, be be part of that for 14 years. And uh, that brings me to now. Um, One thing about being a lacrosse coach is you work crazy hours, um, a lot of stress, and uh, you're kind of tied down to one area. And uh, I think my wife gave up a lot for uh, her job so that I could, you know, kind of follow my passion. And uh, now we've kind of moved for her job down to Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm excited to get involved in the community down here a little bit. Probably going to help out at Pace Academy and coach a little lacrosse in high school. And then also, uh, you know, look forward to joining some of your JM3 athletes. And that's kind of where I am right now in my journey.
0: Love it. All right, let's let's, uh, take it back to... um... One of the all time great guys, and you re- referenced them a second ago, Jake Reed, um, great guy, great coach, um, and uh, just, you know, knows lacrosse inside and out. And, um, and he did build an amazing program. I remember when he told me he had this unbelievable group of like freshmen, and that they were going to be really, really good. Um, talk a little bit about Jake as a coach, as a mentor, and any good stories you got on him.
1: Oh, uh, Jake was great. Um, you know, he was fiery. He was intense. Um, the nice thing about my McDonough experience is between Jake Reed, Steve Nichols, and Matt McMullen. Uh, Steve Nichols is actually my soccer coach, he's now the soccer coach at Loyola, and Matt McMullen coached basketball. Um, and I actually took a ton from him that I used in lacrosse that I'm sure we're going to talk about later. Okay. Uh, but um, those guys were fiery. They were intense and they did a great job preparing all of us for college and what it took to be successful in college and what it took to be a successful athlete. And, you know, I learned a ton from Jake and he really built a great thing at McDonough. That class of 1999 went on to have, uh, you know, some pretty special players in it. Um, you know, I was short sticked in high school, um, so all the guys around me were probably a lot better than me um so uh i think brian kelly from calvert hall or dave allen at gilman were the one of them were the first two to short stick me but they both definitely put a short stick on me in high school and uh so that goes to show how uh you know talented the players were around me with brad dumont owen daly ryan floyd matt prim on the offense which was really cool
0: yeah um then how did you uh, end up at hopkins
1: I looked at a bunch of schools. Um, I looked at Princeton. um, I looked at Hopkins. I looked at Loyola and Cornell in addition to some other schools. Um, I thought I was better fit for a smaller school, a private school. Um, Obviously that was a little more in the line of McDonough. Um, And I ended up just really falling in love with the combination of academic excellence and lacrosse excellence at Hopkins. I really love the fact that lacrosse at that time meant so much to the university. To the school, to the city of Baltimore, and to the sport of lacrosse. I grew up going to games on Homewood all the time. Um, and I just wanted to be part of that.
0: That's awesome. So you played one year for Coach Hawes and then three years for Petro.
1: Exactly. Yes. My first year was Coach Haas. He was great. I learned a lot from him. Um, and then Coach Petro came in uh, my sophomore year. And uh, the rest, you know, it's kind of history.
0: Yeah. And then there was some great recruiting going on. And two years after you graduated, they won their first championship.
1: Yeah. In my senior year, 2003, we had a great squad and we lost in that mud bowl game to Virginia. Oh, yeah. Um, that had some really talented players, too, and did a great job. Um, yeah. And then two years later, in 2005, they won their first championship. And then the next one, I was fortunate to be back coaching uh, That's for
0: right. So uh, tell me a little bit about your experience at UNBC and what, what you learned from Coach Zim.
1: Coach Zim is an excellent teacher and an excellent teacher of fundamentals. Um, I, I learned a lot about the value of the fundamentals. I learned a lot about letting guys play, about um, finding the right balance between making sure that they're dialed in with their skills and, and dialed in with, you know, making sure that they're not turning the ball over, getting ground balls, playing together, but then at times people just need to play. And he was a master at understanding when people need to play and go out and experiment and learn for their own and when they need to be reeled back in and you know focus on the fundamentals and, and making sure that they're not turning the ball over, taking good shots, playing good team defense, talking in the right spots and all those things. Um, that balance that he had was uh, really impressive. And that's probably one of the things I took from him. And then another thing was he had some great one hit plays that we use to this day at Hopkins. Um, And I definitely stole some of those and kept those in my repertoire.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. And then uh, a year at Loyola, tell me a little bit about what you learned from Coach Toomey and the staff over there.
1: That was a great experience. Um, You know, it was the first time Coach Zim being an offensive guy. So it was the first time I was really the only offensive guy on staff. And I was young. I was 24 years old, um, turned 25 that season. And Coach Toomey let me run the offense and do what I wanted. And I really respected him for that. And what I learned from him was how to be a great person around the campus community, how to get along with everyone, how to really motivate the players to play hard. If you watch Loyola teams, they almost always play hard. They compete. They really buy into the system. Um, They buy into each other. They love each other. And that's probably what Coach Toomey taught me the most. And he's excellent with that.
0: Very cool. And then you made it back to uh, homewood homewood in 2007. Paul Rabel's senior year was it? Junior year. and you guys yep. were able to uh, you know win another championship. And at that time Hopkins was you know really setting a trend on how you play offense and how you draw slides and move the ball and, and the way you guys moved the ball, I'd say in 2007 off of, off of Dodges and slides was an absolute thing of beauty. Talk a little bit how you got to that um, at that time.
1: So, when I got to Hopkins in 2007, 2008, we were very midfield dominant. Um, those guys were beasts. They were athletes. They ran at you, they ran downhill. Um, I've never coached or seen anybody like Paul Rabel, Stephen Pizer, um, even John Rannigan, and some of the guys in that era that we were able to coach Lee Coppins with John Greeley. I mean, we had some big athletic guys at the midfield. Um, at that time the attack in 2007 the attack was jake Byrne and kevin huntley uh two of the better finishers or shooters that i've been around Um, and stephen boyle was a freshman he was just coming into his own so we really spent a lot of time um dodging at the midfield playing at the midfield um and and those guys were unbelievably talented and they demanded slides and the nice thing was they knew if they gave it up or if we got the ball moving with jake and kevin down low um, we were going to have some good opportunities to score some goals uh, but that, they were some fun times. And, you know, what they what those guys were able to do at the midfield was incredible. I remember being in the championship game in 2007, and we're in a timeout. And, you know, what do you guys want to do, Steve and Paul? And they're like, let's just do this. And they're dodging, like, third-team All-Americans, um, you know, on, on Duke's defense at the time and, you know, drawing slides. And I'm like, we're just – going to go after them, and we're going to go after them with these two and you know their will and their determination and their athleticism was so impressive
0: no doubt and they they were willing to give it up they were good passers weren't they
1: they were they were good passers um we did a lot of stuff with mumbo zen um kevin huntley on the left side jake Byrne on the right side um but they did a good job you know giving it up when they had to and moving the ball um that was something that we really focused on um and they 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 did a good job when they drew a slide of kind of getting it out of their stick and We tried to put guys in positions where they could be ready to, uh, to shoot or score and make some plays. Um, You know, we had some rough goes in 07 and 08 early in the year. Uh, I think both teams kind of started out, you know, three and three, three and four and uh, came together at the end. And, you know, that was a testament to their kind of cohesion and their competitiveness.
0: Amazing. Talk a little bit about um, what you learned from your mentors on, on the staff, uh, namely, Coach Petro and then other other assistant coaches and, and legends, uh, and Hopkins legends that were a part of the program.
1: That, that was the best thing about being at Hopkins. Um, you know, Coach Petro. The the one thing he really cared about was that vision and that direction uh, of the lacrosse program. And you know, he had learned from you know Don Zimmerman, Fred Smith, um, Joe Cowan, uh, President Brody, Jerry Schneidman, Tom Calder. Um, you know, and, and it goes back before them, I'm sure. It goes back to Henry Ciccaroni and, you know, all the way back to Father Bill Schmoll, uh, Schmeiser probably. And, uh, you know, there, there's a great history of Hopkins lacrosse, um, you know, that that Coach Petra was very fond of. And he did anything he can to continue that vision in, in that direction, um, you know, keeping it in the Hopkins family. You know, we always had Hopkins people that were coaching with us, Um Almost all of his assistants, I think Dave Allen, uh, who was a Baltimore legend um, and probably taught me more lacrosse than almost anybody, and Tim Obransky, our director of operations, were the only two non-Hopkins uh, people that Coach Petra had on staff. Um, you know, Seth Tierney, Bill DeJuan, Bobby Benson, uh, Pat Miller, Howard Offit, Larry Quinn, Jameis Kester. they were all Hopkins guys. And, you know, that was something that was really unique at the time and something that I think was really special. Um, and then coach Petro's obviously a, you know, excellent defensive coach. He's excellent with the schemes and the X's and O's and he is a first rate competitor and those things he really, you know, taught me. And, you know, I was able to learn from him.
0: I think Petro has an unbelievable ability to be intense and also just be a down to earth, great guy. And, and, and his ability to, Just be a great guy to hang out with in combination with his on-field intensity, competitiveness, and and knowledge uh, really is an amazing combination.
1: Yeah, we had some great times in the office, without a doubt. Um, Coach DeLon, Coach Petro, and myself, um, they were were really some memorable times and some enjoyable moments. And when he gets out on the field, he's all business. Um, You know, you see he's fiery, you see he's competitive. Um, but nobody cared more. Nobody cared more about the Hopkins family. Nobody cared more about the young men that were on the team. Um, and nobody cared more about the status that Hopkins held within the university, within the Baltimore community, and within the, even the lacrosse community itself than Coach Petro.
0: So talk a little bit about Coach Duan, one of the all-time great guys in the game.
1: Coach Dewan is probably the best guy, him and Maddie Duan at Loyola. I'm fortunate to be, you know, I went from one Dewan to the other, and they are <laughs> terrific people. Um, you know, people that don't need the limelight, you know, they they're, they love operating behind the scenes, and the guys on the team absolutely loved Coach Dewan. And, you know, he was always there to help them. He was always there to support them. Um, he's as competitive as anyone. Huge hockey fan, um, huge hockey fan. And, you know, he's just a a wonderful person and a really, really hard worker. I mean, he would be breaking down film, looking for tendencies um, all hours of, you know, the night and that that part I really respected of him too.
0: Awesome. All right, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about offense. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how your philosophy evolved from the time when you were a young assistant, even in the UMBC days into the early Hopkins days and and as time went on and and in terms of how you guys played and and really how the game was evolving too?
1: Yeah, you know, I think when I was in school um, was the era of the the Bill Tierney slide early defense. Um, Four sheet on the slide, slide early. A lot of teams started doing throwbacks, pops and fades off the crease. Um, The high wing offense came about a little bit. Um, and those were the things I started with. Um, and I kind of took from Hopkins as a player, um, and, and rolled into UMBC Loyola and even my time at Hopkins, we had some big, uh, midfielders that were athletic that ran it. Yeah. And we would pop off the crease. on. we'd mumble a little bit. Um, and I think that's how I started. Um, it's definitely how I started and we had a lot of success that way. And, and I think a lot of teams played that way. Um, in 2009, I uh, had drawn up an offense, and I had just taken my high school basketball offense and added somebody behind the goal. Um, and I wanted to run it. And I talked to Dave Allen about it, who was our volunteer at the time, who was an excellent uh, coach. Um, I had talked to my high school basketball coach about it, because he had always said, why in lacrosse do you not run more free-flowing things like a basketball motion? Um, and I talked to him about it a little bit and knew how we taught it in high school basketball. And I just never did anything with it. And we still had some really good midfielders and we recruited some more with John Rannigan and uh, the accomplishment John Greeley, Marshall Burkhardt, Tim Donovan that were, you know, big um, North South Dodgers. Um, but then came 2013, 2014, uh, we had Wells Stanwick on the team. Um, and we wanted to get him more involved. We had Ryan Brown was coming in. Um, he was on the team uh, and we wanted to just get more involved, get better off ball movement, have, have more free flow. Um, I wanted to let the guys play a little more. And at the same time, ironically, I was doing a master's degree, um, just trying to figure out better ways to lead and, and communicate. Um, and, and I put two and two together. and my high school basketball offense and you know, pulled out the 2009 offense that i put on the computer and made some more tweaks to it and said we're going to do this in the fall and uh took keys out of my pocket and tossed keys to Wells stanwick it was a little you know this thing's yours and go ahead um and, and wells may be one of the better players that i've actually ever been around um, i always say the three guys that if i could run a team that i want running my team are darren lowe ryan boyle and well stanwick uh the three guys i've been around that just understood the game understood offense and took offenses to a new level Um, and we messed around with it in the fall of 13 spring of 14 not really knowing what we were doing the spring of 14 and the guys really took to it and we just kept tweaking it Um, we practiced it playing basketball we practiced it taught it the way i was taught to play high school basketball Um, you know we spent a lot of time on pick play i spent some time talking to dave huntley um, about pick play at the, at the time and you know some of the stuff they do in the box game. Um, you know I, I don't consider it necessarily a, a box offense in that players kind of go to both sides of the field and move around a lot more maybe. Um, it's definitely more of a basketball offense. But we started getting into that. Um, and then we morphed some of that into a big little behind the goal um, if we wanted to invert some. Um, we did keep a traditional high wing um, that we went to sometimes. Uh, we did have some set plays that we went to at times, um, but we kind of started out with our motion each game and see how teams were playing us, see how we were doing in our motion and then adjust from there. And a lot of times we would just stay with motion. And I think the guys liked it. I think they really enjoyed the freedom that they had to play. Um, I think they enjoyed the fact that it was their offense, that they owned it, that they made it, they controlled it. And you know, I was more there to facilitate it. Um, we talked a lot, especially with the shot clock coming in around that time about risk reward and when we want to look to make plays and when we don't, you know, game plans were spent saying, Hey, let's try to attack this guy or, you know, let's, maybe we can set picks with this guy. And that's kind of how we would do the game plan. And then they would go play and say, Oh, I have number 37 on me. I should go pick for um, Joey Epstein now. And that that was instead of calling plays where you're picking for you, it was like, Hey, in this game, we want to try to pick with this guy for this guy. And we want to try to manipulate these matchups and then let the guys go play. And it's amazing when you let them go play what they can do. And it's amazing how much better they are when they're actually kind of thinking about the game and their decisions. And instead of just running where you tell them to run.
0: I love it. I think it's so interesting. I've been thinking a lot about this and I want to dive even deeper. But first you mentioned that coach Zim had an amazing way of having this balance between fundamentals and and taking care of the ball and at the same time letting them play. And it seems like that was what you were trying to do as well.
1: Yeah, it definitely was a little bit of learning from coach Zim. Um, You know, the offense itself uh, was probably more unique or innovative. Um, I don't know, it's a basketball offense um coach Zim would come out to practice a lot of times and he'd stop halfway through and he'd be like we just need a scrimmage we're just going to go scrimmage and if he felt like the guys needed to just play they would just play um and once or twice a year we'd go sit in the stands and he wanted to see who took leadership and who was able to kind of develop themselves um you know there were times in games and coach Zim loved Deuce's offense Um, the deuces set and he'd be like we just got to play deuces we just got to play deuces just let him play for a little bit Um, you know with the motion we weren't as strict in terms of positions everybody could play any position they wanted to yeah and there were six spots on the field and you can go wherever you wanted to go Um, obviously we spent time saying okay why are you going there or what are you accomplishing there so they were going to spots where they could be successful um, but they could go wherever they wanted and but that idea of, hey, just let him play. Just let him go play this possession or let's let him go play today um, was something that coach Zim had a good feel for. And I was trying to pick up from him for sure.
0: So interesting. You know, as, as, a, as a coach, as an offensive coordinator, there are times when you're feeling like, you know, you need, you need answers, you know, and, and sometimes in a game, you might feel like you don't have an answer. But I've been thinking a lot about this and relative to what you're saying with let him play. It's, it's really not your problem it's the player's problem. And by letting them play over time, you're letting them learn how to problem solve.
1: That, that's so true. And, you know, we had some quick hit things that if we were really stagnant, we could go to. Um, but a lot of times those don't work, you know, they, they don't always work out the way that you think they're gonna work out on the board. And I found that the players were a lot better at making plays than I was. Um, I can go back to several games, overtime games, Virginia, Penn state, you know, and we're running, Hey, we're going to run, go run motion guys, just go make a play, go run motion. And we're going to get a goal. Um, it's the end of the game. It's a tie game, Rutgers, a couple games, we're going to go run motion and we're going to get one shot and go run motion. And let's just get one shot at the end of the game here and see if we can pull it off. Um, if it's tied or in certain scenarios and the guys are going to be a lot better than me saying hey run this now right. um, and they they make plays a lot better than i make plays and that was something that took me a little bit to figure out and you know, i think that the last six years we've been super successful on offense uh, i feel like especially when you look at offensive efficiency um we might not be the fastest we might not be the slowest um, but in terms of putting the ball in the goal, when we had it, um, you know, our efficiency levels were generally, um, you know, the tops are amongst the tops in the country, um, almost every year or every single year for the past six years. And I think that it has a lot to do with just letting the guys play and trying to help them find situations they can be successful, but letting them go make plays,
0: letting them make plays, letting them play. It's, it's hard to do because everybody feels the, the need for a, a structure. And I think sometimes that structure makes the coach feel better than anything else. Um, but no matter who you are as a coach, you have principles that you need to follow along with your structure. What you guys did was sort of not worry about the structure, but you focus more on the principles and what would you say, if you could just rattle off um, the, and, and maybe go into a little detail on what principles you thought were most important that you guys focused on?
1: Oh, of course. Um, you know, we spent more time coaching and teaching this than probably anybody could have any idea. Uh, from film to on the field, it, we spent a lot of time coaching and teaching those principles that you're talking about. Um, and there were principles in whether it was skill or dodging or things like that, that we focused on with the general thing being we we can't throw the ball away we can't throw singles away we've got to we used to say the term we use is make the defense defend us every possession we don't want to give the defense back the ball make them defend us make them defend a full possession make them defend a short possession but make them defend us don't give the ball back to them um keep the pressure on them dodge them well, if it's early in the possession, we want plays that are going to happen 80% of the time, and they're going to come up sometimes. Um, if it's later in the possession, we might look for a play that's going to happen 50-50. Um, but where's the, where are we in the possession? Where are we in the game? How much risk are we taking? But make them defend us every possession, because if we make a defense defenders for 60 seconds, they're probably going to break down, and we're probably going to have a shot that we can score, that we can just throw the ball in the goal. Um, So one of the things that we talked a lot about was making them defend us. Um, That was a a really big one. Another one that we talked a lot about was it's better to be wrong than indecisive. Um, Be certain, be sure, communicate to your teammates and all be on the same page. And if we're going to pick for Joel Tinney's right hand, it's probably not the smartest play because he loves going left-handed. But just go pick for his right hand. He'll run off it right-handed. We'll keep our flow and we'll be able to play again. Um, so if we're going to make plays, just go make them decisively. We can adjust later if they're wrong. But if you go to give and go cut, then you stop, then you start again. And the teammate starts to feed you. We're going to throw the ball away because we're not sure what's going on. Just make the hard cut. Worst case scenario, you catch it, you don't have a shot, you run back out we keep playing. Um, so we had, you know, make them defend us, be, uh, be sure, don't be indecisive. Um, we had another big one. If you're uncomfortable, pull it out. If you're comfortable, keep playing. And what we meant by that was, you know, if we can get the second, third, fourth dodges in a possession and we can keep our flow, that's great. We don't want to back up when we catch the ball. We want to keep the pressure on the defense. We want to think a couple passes ahead. We want to get the spots early and we want to keep pressure on them and we want to keep going. But if we're not comfortable, we don't want to force a play. That's when we get into problems. We can always pull it out and reset. Um, And then that also meant we could have a two on four, but their defense isn't set up and it's Ryan Brown with a short stick and they're not, really organized the slide and he can go ahead and dodge two on four because his hands are free his heads up he sees what's going on and he's great um and we can play we can have a three on two in our favor but it's off a scramble and we don't have our hands free because the guy's checking us and we can run away and have the ball and we don't have to play if we're comfortable and our hands are free keep right. playing if we're uncomfortable we can pull it out the disadvantage of defense is you have to play when you're uncomfortable because the defense is because the offense is going to put pressure on you on offensive, it was, you know, when in doubt, pull it out. But if we're comfortable, it doesn't matter the situation. Let's go and play. And let's play. Um, you know, if you're comfortable, um, keep pressure on. If you're uncomfortable, pull it out uh, was another big principle.
0: What about some principles as far as things like spacing or ball movement or two-man game or where you yeah. wanted to dodge from and shot selection, stuff like that?
1: We had uh, – we had six spots in our motion. It was a basketball five-man motion, four perimeter guys, one post guy. So there was one guy inside, um, four perimeter guys in motion, and then one guy x behind. We wanted to fill those spots, be about 10, 15 yards apart so we could move the ball without being on top of each other. Uh, somebody dodges towards you, clear through, creates space. Uh, simple things that a lot of people have after you pass you move that was a big one after you pass you move so we love the giving go cut we love passing screen away so pass and pick passing cut passing screen was was a big one fill the spots closest to the ball first so we would then rotate kind of around so we always had two outlets one in front and one behind but we tried to always have two outlets yeah Um, in terms of spacing in terms of general principles they were our principles Um, and then pick play we had a whole nother set um in the simplest form butt where he's dodging to inside out angle pick the back shoulder or back hip pocket of the defender um, dodge hard off the pick um, if they're going to switch we want to slip if they're going to stay we want to stick the pick um, and, and I know that was I think a big coach Humpley, uh line and then yep. um, we went from there if you were picking four well Stanwick with a favorable matchup, or if you're picking for Joey Epstein and you've got a long stick mini or a short stick, you might lean towards sticking it a little more. Uh, We would get into games where we'd say this short stick really bumps and hedges picks far. We want to slip with this when we're setting picks with this short stick, but the other short stick, he doesn't go as far. We want to look to stick picks that would become game plan oriented. Um, But the simplest form was they switch, we slip, they stay, they stick, and then we would take it from there um, and allow some creativity as well
0: it's so great to be able to have a motion um, like this because it's so unpredictable and it gives freedom. And it also sets up a defense for some of those like quick hitters, right? You're gonna be able to run your quick hitter plays that are sort of designed based, usually based on, You know either smart picks off ball or 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 scripted spacing with a with a with a slide that's going to give you a look with some ball movement but how huge was it to be able to hit people at the end of uh, the second or fourth quarter with 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 set pieces after you wear them down with motion
1: yeah i mean i think the georgetown playoff game was a big one for that um coach petro was like try one of those flip plays and i think we scored three straight goals to come back on uh the flip plays. Uh, one of those was a Coach Zim special that I stole from him from UMBC. Uh, you know, but that was nice. It was nice to have those to go to. It was nice to have those to throw in if you got stale, if you need a little change up. Um, sometimes we would just start with uh, one of them just to get moving, and then flow into our motion from there. Uh, so we had a few different ways. Some t- every team was different. Uh, some teams like to start out with a little bit of a step play just to get a moving. Some, yeah. Uh, some didn't um, some teams like to just play. Uh, at one point we had a bunch of attackmen uh, kind of coming through the box and we spent a couple practices or scrimmages where they kept alley dodging to start the offense and I'm like, how many of you guys dodge well from up top and nobody put their hand up And I'm like so let's start our offense behind the goal And they're like, oh that makes sense. <laughs> um, so that year, that year we were almost always kind of going behind to start in some sort of an invert where we were moving the ball a little bit getting guys back there. Um, every team kind of went a little different there, but it was nice to have that. And it's just nice to be unpredictable. It's nice to, you know, not have the defense know, hey, there's going to be a guy on this wing and that wing. And sometimes if you're a little disorganized, but you're practicing being disorganized, the defense is disorganized too, and they might not be as good at being disorganized as you are.
0: No doubt. I want to hear more about the the invert kind of motion that you guys had. I mean, I, your, your, your motion offense you know, with those six spots was was really cool to watch and to try to like study over the years. Um, but your motion, you had an amazing motion with your invert motion too, where you would have various people rolling behind for various big little type of inverts. And you had your various looks out front. In fact, you were good enough um, probably about five or six years ago to share a bunch of that with me. And I put it in with my Mountain Vista High School crew, but I would love to hear uh, more about what you guys did with that.
1: Yeah, we had, we had a handful of things and they all flowed off of our motion offense. And the nice thing is it was teaching players to move, to play without the ball. And I think they went hand in hand then. So it was easier to teach. Um, and when we were behind in motion, we were kind of just in our inverts. So they, you know, there was a lot right. of intersection between the two. And what we talked about was we called it pasta and it was a spaghetti. Um, we would talk about going... Inside five yards, coming back out to 15. If you're coming out, look to screen for somebody. If you're cutting in, look to cut off of somebody. Um, And then if you're setting a screen and they want to switch it, we want to slip it. If they're going to stay, we want to stick it. All those things still came into play. Yeah. Um, And we wanted to stay off the islands in the dodging lanes to give our guys room to dodge. And besides that, we kind of let them go. Know where your defender is. If your defender starts to slide, you might just want to turn and recut. Um, was something we talk about some and then we just let guys play and practice it um, we would do some scripted if they went into invert zones where yeah. we would either be in almost a deuces set where the guys are switching sides or working together in pairs inside and up top and then we would also do something where the pairs were on the sides, so they were more in it was a variation of the old school stacks offense yep. um, where you would go in, one guy would go inside, one guy would come outside. Um, not exactly that, but I think that helped a little bit with spacing and movement because then they could take those two and combine them into uh, the, um, the pasta and the spaghetti offense. Um, and then the guys got really good. And as they got good at being creative with the motion, we would do what we would call big, big, the big, little, and we would say, we're going to go behind with Wells and Shaq with two bigs, and we're going to play pasta above the goal with two short sticks um, up top. Now the short sticks have to play off the ball. If Wells gets Shaq's player, the second short stick, we're then going to, if they switch the pick, we're then going to pull Shaq above the goal because there's a good chance that Wells' defender at the time, who's a very good one ball player, um, doesn't want to play off the ball. He's probably not great off the ball. So we'll pull Shaq now to make this defender play off the ball, put him in the pasta, and we'll roll behind with Cody Ratzewitz, who has a short stick, say. Um, but if we're playing and they're getting through the picks, and in the course of the spaghetti up top, Ryan Brown gets a short stick, then Ryan's going to roll behind, and he's going to go ahead, and we're going to play with Ryan having a short stick as well. And so we're playing, but also they have all these different kind of reads that they can go ahead and do. And we did a lot of it. And some teams got more complicated than others. Um, we would do it with uh, long stick midi sometimes. We could put John Crowley behind with the long stick midi. And you know, if the long stick midi switches on to you know Wells Stanwick or Shaq Stanwick, um, we're gonna go ahead and roll a short stick and make the long stick play in the big little. Uh, but if not, then you know maybe we'll roll back if this guy gets a short stick. And so they're always playing and then they're always making reads and You know, they have to still always be aggressive and go to the goal. Um, You don't want them just waiting for switches because then you don't accomplish anything. Um, You know, still trying to slip picks and things. Um, But we got, you know, pretty in-depth sometimes, sometimes less in-depth. You know, more recently, Cole Williams was really good at it. Cole Williams was really good. I think I did a breakdown with you on uh, one of the games and Cole was really good about you know, we'd go back there in the big little, but Cole would find the short stick and he, you know, Hey, if you have the short stick pick for Cole, or we're going to pick for Cole and we'd be able to get, you know, kind of change the matchups there. Um, and then he'd get off and sometimes he'd roll right behind. Sometimes he'd get off and just dodge right away before the defense is set. Um, you know, but a lot of, you know, manipulating matchups that way we would try to do, we talked a ton about matchups. We talk a lot about yeah,
0: matchups. So interesting. And it's really cool that you were manipulating. I mean, a lot of people will try to get a matchup with an on-ball pick, but Probably easier to do it off ball, actually.
1: A lot of times, yeah. I mean, a lot of teams just switch everything off ball, um, especially on the crease. Um, not all, but a lot. Too. Some went to invert zones. Um, you know, we when they went to invert zones, we may go behind, put them in an invert zone, and then play our emotion out of that. Because when everyone moves around, when they get their matchups again out of their invert zone, they don't have the same matchups. And we would just, Spend the first five or seven seconds just setting up an invert to then go into our motion. We still play 50 seconds of motion offense, but we play 50 seconds of motion offense and everybody has a different matchup. And a lot of teams get uncomfortable when they have different matchups. And we want it to be comfortable. We want the defense to be uncomfortable.
0: No doubt. Not only is it uncomfortable for them matchup wise, but it's uncomfortable to try to go from man to man to zone, back to man to man, back to zone, back to man to man. Exactly. Um, it's, it's not it's not easy, especially when you kind of just, you know, flow from the man, you know, from your motion into your invert by, 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 But you know, if you sort of attack a wing, but it's kind of is it a carry is it a dodge, all of a sudden you're behind there. And now they're, you know, gonna run into their spots, you know, I mean, you probably should know how to play all the spots inside, but you generally have spots you're more comfortable with. And then all of a sudden someone's standing in front of the net wide open because they screwed it up.
1: And if they put a short stick inside, then Cole Williams would know, hey, I'm going to go stand inside so that when this thing comes back around or I use the short stick as an example. A lot of times we would talk about um, the long stick midi or the third defenseman that covers an off ball guy. And we want to get this third defenseman on, you know, Joey Epstein or, hey, Cole, they've got a smaller long stick midi that's a big checker. Like, you should probably go find him and be physical with him. Um, it wasn't always a short stick. That's just some tends to be the easy example because going back to Paul Rabel and Steven Pizer, we have no problem. We've never had problems dodging poles. Um, you know, a lot of times when short sticks have to slide and when you're able to be poles, it opens up a whole nother aspect of the game. Um, so it wasn't always the short stick as much as the favorable matchup.
0: You guys also ran some pairs on the wings too. Was that separate from your motion, would you say, or was it sort of a part of it?
1: Yeah. Um, we ran a little bit of it. Um, we ran it some with Joel Tinney and Cole Williams. Um, yeah. we taught it. We taught it when we as a way to play out of a circle. So if we oh, wanted to get rid of the crease completely and play out of a circle, we would go some to a Paris type look. We tried to still allow the four guys up top to cross screen and switch spots. Some Um, I I do like when defenders have to play and cover guys that kind of cover more ground than being stuck on one side of the field. Um, That being said, um, a lot of times we'd start with Cole and Joel playing like a pair's looking up pick on that wing, at least to get it going. Um, And then there was times where it was just our emotion. I remember looking at, people and talking to people breaking down you know our pairs offense or asking me hey when you were in pairs in this situation i'm like well that was actually not pairs that was motion um you know I, i'd say we probably spent less than five percent of our time in, in that circle offense got it um, most of it was our emotion uh but we did have it and a little bit with Tinney and cole we used it some um, but not a lot we spent most of our time in our motion, but yeah. it had a lot of the same principles pass down pick down
0: yeah you get the then. same one
1: yeah. It was a lot of the same principles, so a lot of times, you know, I, sometimes I wouldn't know. Hey, were we in a uh, you know rounder motion <laughs> or what were we in there?
0: <laughs> when so. you guys, when you would get your screen away, okay, um, which not there's not a whole lot of off ball picking or screening in men's field across. There's just mm-hmm. there just isn't, and I I love your backside. You know the backside down screen you guys would get all the time. Talk about why that was impactful on the offense.
1: Well, that, that served a a lot of reasons. And uh, we used to practice it. We called it the Monroe drill. Cause I think I spoke to you at one point and, uh, and you talked about the little two man where you would pass across and go down screen and then play two on two on one side. So we talk, we talked a lot about it we called it the Monroe drill. Um, (laughs) And uh, you know, in the simplest form, you know, it, it was a, almost a way for two perimeter guys to mumbo. You come in, you receive the screen. I taught it the same way. It wasn't basketball. You come in, you receive the screen on the block, which we call the Island. Right. Yep. And, uh, you know, you come off of it and, you know, go set a good screen, screen a man, not an area. Your butt should be going where he wants to go. If he's going to flare cut a little bit, turn your screen. If he's going to crawl around you, you're going to screen that way. If you want to go back door, the other guy pops out. Um, and we spent a lot of time doing that. It created mismatches. It created, uh, Goals and shots, Uh, it was a great clip of Brandon, but then scoring one at Loyola uh, right off the down screen, I think on a Rob Guida dodge, Um, but it also created a lot of noise and distraction for the defense. Totally. Gave people a lot of dodging space, and we always say, keep that screen low, keep it down by the island so that we give guys more room to come across the middle. Um, as, As you know, when you're coming across the middle, you're getting a lot more angle on your shot. Um, and we wanted to keep that low, keep it down, keep it coming across the middle, and then we'd combine the down screen with uh, a basketball flex cut, where the crease guy would kind of come out, the wing guy would cut in, and then you kind of down screen for the crease guy. Yeah, um, you know, and it, that's one of those things that wouldn't happen that naturally, um, but it would sometimes, and at least to get the guys thinking and getting them moving and kind of keeping those guys on the help side. And, staying active. Um, You know, one thing that I thought was really cool, um, Dan Shimadi called me once and he's like, hey, I like this play you guys ran. And uh, I'm like, which one's that? He's like, oh, right here. And I was like, Dan, it it looked great. That was literally just our motion. And those guys just went out and created that on their own, um, which I thought was really cool. And a lot of that comes from the down screens and and the moving and just kind of practicing simple movements that you know that you can ingrain in them that they'll eventually transfer to the game.
0: Do you think we can get a, a webinar for the uh, jam three coaches training program on these things or what?
1: Of course, of course we can get, we can get a whole, I, 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 I've never spoken much about it except for one time with you on the, um, I know. on the one webcast, but, uh, I have somewhere on my phone, some videos of us like practicing motion, offense, playing basketball in the gym. Um, it's, uh, you know, all, all the same principles. So we, we would go in there and practice sometimes too.
0: How much do you guys uh, seal on your offense?
1: Not a ton. We talk about it a little bit, um, not a ton. We, we, we don't talk, we, we didn't do it a ton. Um, I, I will say a little, but not a ton. Um, the other thing that we didn't talk about a lot that I know some people that do pairs talked about a lot are like posts where you would kind of be still and the guy would come off you. Um, we talk mostly about going and, you know, screening the other guys, man, um, on ball and off ball. We talk a little bit, you know, if you're cutting through, if your guy's going to be hot, you can, you know, steal your own guy's shoulder and hold him up. Um, you know, we talk a little bit in mumbo's about it. Um, you know, trying to go in and hold up your own guy and letting the hot guy, who's the crease guy come out or let the guy coming off the mumbo curl off you. Um, so we would talk about it some, but not, not a ton. Um, just, just, just a little bit. So um,
0: well, let's switch gears to uh, EMO. You guys year, year after year, you had among the best man up teams units in the country. Um, what, what would you say your uh, EMO philosophy is? And how did that evolve over time? You
1: know, I, I think the basis of the philosophy was just moving the ball quickly um, and keeping the ball hot. And the a drill I stole from Seth Tierney was simple hardball where we try to getting our three, three and make 60 passes in, uh, in a minute, 45 skip passes in a minute. Um, and you know, really keeping the ball moving. And then it's like, Hey guys, if we run this play, it takes 15 seconds. We have 45 seconds left on man up. We can make 30 passes and still score a goal with 10 seconds left. Um, you know, make them defend 30 passes in a man up after we run our play. Um, that that was probably the basis of it. Um, no, you know, I was very blessed and fortunate to coach guys that were just good on man up, um, the Stanwix, Ryan Brown, Jake Byrne, Kevin Huntley, Chris Boland, Kyle Wharton. I'm going to forget a ton. Um, Pat Frazier. Um, I was really fortunate that way, uh, to coach some of those guys. And, um, you know, we did little things with our 3-3. Three, three. We tried to make it look a little bit like a house. Um, I think Box does a little bit of that, but where, you know, with one guy inside, almost a one-two-one-two one, two to try to open up some skip lanes. We yep. tried to exchange the ball behind the goal some. Um, and then in the past six years, uh, we created a little bit of movement in it. Um, we did something where we would go from like a 3-3 three, three to a 2-3, and we would have Wells or Shaq uh, run behind the goal, yep. um, kind of carry and throw back to them. We did a four-man right-handed wheel um, at one point. Um, Kyle Marg, another great man out player, where we'd sit him on the left side and pinch somebody and look to either skip it through or let him shoot and let all the righties wheel around. Yeah. Um, we, we try to create a little movement in our 3-3, just something that you know may, may help us some. I let the kids do it on their own whenever they want. I didn't call, hey, wheel now. It was you know, you guys are in charge of that. If you think you get stale or you think we need it, or, you know, if we're just kind of starting it on a missed shot out of bounds, let's get some movement. Um, I let them kind of dictate that, but we did try to incorporate a little movement too, but it all came back to quick ball movement and having, you know, good players, good skills and uh, keeping the ball moving.
0: Why uh, did you like to go through X um, with your three, three and drop it down like that? What, What effect did that have on the defense?
1: You know, I think that became really popular um, when teams were doing what I always refer to as the oyster for the three-three, where the bottom base guy would come up and play the inside guy, and the wing guy would drop all the way down the backside. And what happened when you bang it behind is the guys on the crease would—they'd have to rotate too fast. They couldn't do it. Um, teams have gotten away. Teams have kind of gotten away from that now because of it um i don't know many teams that still play that way they either have found a way to rotate when that happens or they've uh you know play more of like a standstill three three let the you know top guys cover inside a little more um, or a string guy or something like that um for a man they try to slow play things uh, there's a lot of different man downs now um but even still, I think I think whenever the ball's behind the goal and the defense turns our back, it's an advantage. Yeah. Um, and, and you're looking at just different skip lanes. You know, the, the low guys have great skip lanes. Um, we didn't always play through our top center. Uh, we had some really skilled guys down low that would be the one, majority of the ones hitting the skips and playing. And yeah. uh, the top center guys could almost be shooters at times. Um, in, in some ways, banging it behind, even though we were in a 3-3, um, if we kind of cut the crease and spent their, you know, dropped their wings a little bit with skip lanes, it almost was a little hard to cover like the old school two, four. Um, right. You know, totally. you got it. You got to get there. You got to find lanes. We didn't have two guys inside, but with skip lanes and things, um, that banging it behind just makes the whole defense move to the other side of the field quicker than going all the way around.
0: No doubt. I mean, when the ball goes behind, if you're trying to string it, you got to get way down and then mm-hmm. way back up, which is hard. And then, The oyster is that kind of like a five man in other words it was like
1: a five man but it was it was unique i'd say it was popular from like you know 2001 to 2008 (laughs) somewhere in that somewhere in that area um and that's probably where it kind of started um and then we We've just kind of stayed with it. And
0: yeah,
1: I do like banging it behind so It still makes the defense move. But when the ball is behind the goal, the defense has to turn their back. The goalie has to turn his back. It's a much harder save for a goalie when the ball is coming from behind the goal to out top than from out top to out top.
0: Right. And then when the ball goes through X, like you were saying, in, in that five-man, even, even nowadays where a lot of people are playing five-man rotations, when the ball goes through X, they are going to have to rotate into new spots. The top center guy is going to have to rotate over to the backside wing. And, and, and all of a sudden that, usually in the five-man, you kind of like to have this guy playing your top center when the ball kind of stays, goes up and down the sides, everybody can kind of sit in their spots. And when it goes through X, everybody's going to have a new spot. And, and that makes a difference on your man down, don't you think?
1: Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I mean, the more you can get them rotating and moving spots, again, it's about making the defense uncomfortable, um, you know, and giving yourself the best chance to score. There's nothing that's going to work all the time. and There's probably nothing that never works. Um, but I just always tried to find that whatever could, you know, make our guys the most comfortable and the defense the most uncomfortable was probably a good option for us.
0: The way you got Wells and Shaq to either push across behind to turn yourself into, as you said, a two-three. Yeah. Or uh so a two a one behind three-two, some people would call it. But the idea is going from that three three into the two three is um it's really challenging. it it, it requires a pretty two-handed guy that can feed it, you know, but, but when you have that, it is such a sick
1: look. Uh, It was, it was really fun and it was really hard to cover. Um, Those guys did a great job with it. And it does, it requires to a two-handed guy, but you have to be able to play low right and throw a good hard skip pass and make reads and decisions with your left hand or play low left and make one with your right hand. So it's requires a really two-handed player. Um, But it, uh, it, it put a lot of pressure on the defense for sure. Um, it was fun watching different ways that people would try to cover it. Some would try to pressure them. Some would try to do, you know, play off of them. Some, it, it was interesting to, you know, watch some of the different methods people used to try to cover it too because it gave traditional man downs, I think, a little bit of problem.
0: No doubt. I stole that for, uh, for a Mountain Vista high school it push love that look <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about um zone offense um how do your principles stay the same how do they change and, and how did your overall uh concepts evolve from early zone days to later zone days
1: uh, i've I, i've i've covered the gamut on zone um you know we, we've done a lot early on i had a bunch of set plays probably um that i tried to do and they were effective. Some of them were good. Some of them weren't good. Uh, it often depended on, you know, if I came up with a good play or not, which usually isn't a good solution to anything, <laughs> but um, I'd say I probably started that way. You know, that kind of like, Oh, let's run our man up plays against zone um, a little bit with some two, four and some double cuts and, and things. Um, and right about the time that we started with motion, um, we went to a 14 against zone and you know i'm gonna go back to you know wells again um because he did so much for us and and for me but we basically would just dodge a wing throw the ball behind have two guys inside a guy up top and a guy on the other wing and if you can dodge that wing and draw two and you throw it behind and he draws one it really leaves like three guys to cover four and you just had spacing and we just let wells throw it to somebody and uh we put a camera back there a little bit we'd read a little uh, during the course of the preseason and Wells could throw it to the right guy. And we were really good against zone um, for a bunch of years. Um, we kind of got a little reputation, I think, that you didn't want to zone us. Um, and we did that a good bit, especially when we had, you know, the Stanley's back there. Um, we had done a little sideways 3-3, something that we had stolen from uh, Duke um, and, and Coach Zanowski and gave our little twist on it. Um, you know, we did a little 2-4 stuff uh as well still that i kind of kept around um but most of it was 14 um if we wanted to then get a little creative out of our 14 we might pop or mumbo just to throw something off Um, but we would just dodge the zone and just throw it behind and let wells find people Um, the last couple years um we played motion against zone and there were some great looks there there were some good give and go looks we talk about it And those guys took to that really well. Uh, Forey Smith, Kyle Marr, a few of those guys really took well to motion against zone. Um, And it took us probably, I'd say, a couple zone experiments of 14 not going as well with different personnel back there. And we had gone to our motion, and and that ended up going really well. Um, The last couple of years, we had a lot of success with motion against zone. And anytime we can kind of stick with one offense and just play motion, that's always ideal.
0: Like we said, it's, it's the player's problems. The more you give them a chance to solve them, the, probably the better chance they're gonna solve it.
1: Yeah, it's about fi- finally gives the team the best chance to succeed and it's usually letting the players go and letting them do it. Um, as much as we like to you know, have it in our control, it's usually a better chance when it's in their control.
0: Um, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about player development, which is something that I'm passionate about and I'm really excited to have you on board with. Um, Talk about your philosophies on that and, and kind of how, how that has evolved as, as I think the game has kind of evolved from the time that you were in high school through your early Hopkins days and, and through now with the, the, the Pairs you know, explosion, the Canadian ex, influence, um, as well as just you know, tried and true methods of, of things that work.
1: Yeah, you know, we've talked a good, a good bit about this and, uh, you know, player development probably really really has changed. Um, I think the Canadian influence has uh, had a big impact on that as well. Um, I think probably social media has because everyone likes to be on a highlight film uh, and look good <laughs> on a highlight film, um, you know, and, and recruiting uh, has definitely picked up. And I think that's made, you know, player development at the young level is even more important. Um I think it was one of your, your podcasts, Dan Shamadi said something along the lines of "we recruit all we recruit all the players based on how good they are and how talented they are, and then we play them based on how smart they are." Um, was that one of yours podcasts? I don't Probably. know Dan Shimody. It might have been. Um, yeah. And you know, I often found that true. Um, and you know, as we've said, sometimes the direct individual player development and then the team development don't always go completely hand in hand. Right. Um, you know from an individual standpoint, um, you know, we played, I mean, we played some box. We took our guys down to the box arena and played. We played a good bit in the past few years, especially during our winter time of three by four by create different games that way, tennis ball games. Um, You know, I I think all of that's really important just for understanding the play and and understanding, you know, how how to make plays and and what you can do and what you can't do. and where you're going to get your most bang for your buck. Um, you know, there's a big portion of strength and conditioning that comes in with uh, player yeah. development. And there's a big portion of skill development. You develop skill playing three-on-two. You develop skill playing two-on-one. Um, you develop skill anytime a uh, uh, sticks in your hand. And, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the book Talent Code, um, but I love Talent Code, love Culture Code. Um, you know, Daniel Coyle's uh, specialties. Um, But even in that book, you know, there's two huge talent, you know, I guess ways that talents develop that are opposite. You look at, you know, Brazil and playing futsal and, you know, the smaller field and the heavier ball. It's almost like box lacrosse. And that's why they're great at soccer. You know, they do a great job and their guys learn to play. Um, And then you can look at. You know golf for instance and you have that swing and they break it down to the smallest points and you'd hit little chip shots and you know how you hold it your grip and you know uh, there's a lot of that in development and lacrosse is probably somewhere you know in the middle and that you do have to have that skill and that ability to have the skill and be able to you know break down the the nuances of the golf swing so to speak but if you're not fluid with it and you can't go play and you don't understand spacing and timing and how to handle somebody on your gloves and uh, there's so much more that goes into it, um, that you can't, you know, you you can't just be, um, you know, the guy that can do the skills with nobody around with nobody on you. Um, and I think there's a huge development on both sides right now. Um, you know, and I'm learning a lot with my young kids and, and watching them and, you know, i think i told you you know whenever we go in the backyard you know we're throwing behind the backs and between the legs as much as we can and uh i, I wasn't doing that in my practices um, okay. you know uh so i think there's a you know uh, big difference there um,
0: there is and, and, now, i want i want to have you expound on that a little bit because you know as as the offensive coordinator hopkins trying to win games you know, you have the principles of hey, let's make them play defense for 60 seconds. Um, and that's that's a little bit of a, that It's a different priority than, you know, a middle school or high school or youth kids learning to play where actually it's making mistakes and trying things. Mm-hmm. That is what they need more than anything.
1: Without a doubt. And and when you're at Hopkins, that's why you have fall and that's why you play three by and that's why you go to box. And that's why, because you have to have that balance and, right. and you have to find that balance. Um, and one thing at Hopkins that I found is a really important part of player development. And maybe this was more so even when we did motion, um, but was developing their mental decision-making because there were so many decisions um, that were made. And again, we were always in, you know, the last six years, we've been in the top 10 in offensive efficiency, um, you know, I think almost every year, I think every year, um, you know, depending on who, who does the offensive efficiency stats, I guess. But, um, but our, our levels were very high and we really talked about it a ton. And, you know, there were times where we'd be like, this guy should be a little more dynamic or this guy should be going a little more. And I, you know, there was, one of the years we lost to Loyola early. I had spent a lot of the preseason trying to talk more about dodging, talk more about being individuals and beating guys and, you know, being creative and, you know, keeping your head up and, you know, seeing teammates and this, that, and the other. And I think we stood around on offense. We stood in the way of the guy dodging and we dodged and then, you know, got trail checked because there was somebody in our way and it, was a disaster. And I was like, all right, we're going back to focusing on off ball play and, you know, making good decisions off the ball on the team. And we took right back off. Um and, you know, the the player development at at that level was almost all off ball and decision making. And they were, you know, how we really spent time developing. Um, And, you know, I I look at somebody like Connor Disamohen, who's still there um kind of for three years been on the first midfield and you know his freshman and sophomore year we're in the top 10 in offensive efficiency he's on the first midfield you know and we have great years and great offenses um and you know and his stats aren't 25 goals 25 assists but he is doing a great job and you know when he's in we're being successful and that's what you know how often are we scoring when you're when we're when you're in not how often are you scoring but how often are we scoring when you're in um, but then individually. So now we go back to, you know, um, you know that the middle school, the high school. You know, you want to learn how to make plays, and, and you're still going to recruit guys that are going to learn how to make plays and be creative. And there's that side, and there was that side at Hopkins. And you know, I, I think playing, and I think whether it's four on four, two on two, three on three, whether it's in the backyard, whether it's organized, um, you know, I, I think playing is something that's really important. Uh, I do. I think having a stick in your hand. Um, I love wall ball, but I love wall ball when you make it creative. Um, And one of my favorite things to do with wall ball is actually to get two balls going at once. Um, The second ball speeds things up a little bit, so you don't have that time to kind of relax or get dull. Because sometimes you sit there, you create a couple of times and it doesn't translate to a game. And what you can do to pick things up a little bit so that it translates a little bit better, I think, is good. you know i think those types of things are important um you know even at the young ages, when i'm out with my kids who are seven and six and where they're having a catch i'll have them each throw a ball and each catch the ball um because it really you know you gotta catch it right after it's thrown you know and you gotta yep. play fast and see how fast you can get in and out of your stick or three guys and two balls and things like that that just you know create a little more games keep away things like that um i think are good um you know my uh my, my, my son played youth soccer this year and his coach was a guy that was really into the development part of soccer and, and and youth soccer is really probably more advanced than lacrosse when you talk about development um you know i listen to a podcast even in Belgian soccer where they play like two on two um and you know it's really one-on-one with a goalie and you play a short game and you move up if you win and down, if you lose and you're always playing against your competition and it maximizes touches for everybody. Um, it's not, you know, seven guys on the field running around with one ball and nobody touching it. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think that that stuff's really impactful. And my, my son's coach was like said, you know, the one thing that in the soccer development model, and one thing that I want to do is I want to create guys to start out that are a little bit selfish and are willing to take guys off the dribble and take guys to go to the goal. And then we can worry about also passing and playing too, but you have to learn to be a little selfish and you gotta learn to be able to make plays. And, you know, I think that's important for kids at a young age. Totally. And at at an old age, but if they have it at a young age, they can develop everything else as well. Um, And and I think that that's something that's, you know, that's important.
0: No doubt, the structure and the rules and you know have to be in place to, to play like a team. And that's why structure is important. You you, you to, to beat a good team, you have to play like a team and play good team offense, good team defense. You have to be on the same page. And it requires that people sacrifice this or that to be able to do what's best for the team. And I think that at the young ages, that gets confused and it gets and then player development is is really hindered. By that, those concepts of the team, and and honestly, that's what we're kind of discovering.
1: It's yeah, no, I mean, and they don't always go hand in hand. And you know, I think uh, Jerry Byrne often says, you know, he doesn't spend a ton of time talking about individual defense. Um, you know, they've recruited that, and you know, most of the time spent, you know, in the off-ball play and the positioning and the approach and this and that and the other. Yeah, and I think we're probably a little bit the same the way I t- taught offense. You know, and. and you know, we spent a lot of time doing skill work, so I shouldn't say that. But, you know, it's a lot of when we were with the team teaching the offense, it was a lot of the decision-making and off-ball play. I mean, you only have the ball one-sixth of the time, you know, and five-sixths of the time you don't have it. And that's you have to learn to play off the ball. you got to be good off the got ball. Got
0: it. Uh, okay, last topic. Let's talk a little bit about recruiting. Um, this weekend you're actually going down to uh, one of Coach Petro's events and Coach Coddles events down in Florida, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to get down there. So I fly out tomorrow. And uh, I'm excited to go down and uh, check it out and get to work with some of the top 2023s. I believe there's some JM3 sports athletes out there. So I'm excited to go down there and see them and, uh, you know, dive into the 2023 class and get to coach them a little bit.
0: Yeah, it's pretty awesome, actually, for you, because um, all your uh, buddies that uh, used to be your colleagues in the coaching world um, haven't watched a kid play lacrosse in a year almost.
1: I know uh,
0: you're going to be a little ahead of them on on that. But but let's talk. Let's let's reel it back to recruiting, sort of generally. Um, you know, I personally always loved recruiting on a lot of levels. I thought it was fun to go. You know, just be at the events. It was fun to watch players play. It was a grind, but I enjoyed it. It was really fun to get to know them. And can you just talk a little bit about you know uh, your philosophies on recruiting?
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm like you. Know, I absolutely loved um, getting out and watching guys play and getting to know them and watching them recruits. Um, you know, the part of recruiting that's hard is that it's nights and weekends, so it's always around, uh, you know, free time, so it's a lot of missing the family. Um, yeah. But it, it, it was really fun to, to get out and watch them um, and get to know them, and I thought that part was awesome. On a Tuesday afternoon at 12, I thought everyone it was the best job in America by far. <laughs> Um, you know, and then when, when we're looking for people, you know, I think you're always looking for somebody that's doing something well, um, somebody that's going to fit into what you want to do, but you're looking for diversity. Uh, you're looking for guys that shoot the ball. You're looking for guys that feed the ball. You're looking for guys that are fast. You're looking for guys that play off the ball. You look for guys that are small, quick. Um, you want them to do what they do well, and you want to find a way that you can use them. Um, You know, you don't want the guys that are going to be hindered by a setback. Um, But at the same time, you want to make sure that what they do, they do well. And I guess what I mean by that is you can be an off-ball guy and you're going to score a lot of goals off-ball and you're going to keep working off-ball, but you can't be a liability when you have the ball. So you look first, what, what do they do well, right? Where, where, where can I fit them into the offense? And then it's, are they, okay, are they going to be able to help us on the field? Are they going to be a liability um, and, and things? I think you always need a couple of spots for guys that are just athletes. that just run fast, um, especially in the defensive end um, and, and in the defensive midfield. Um, but being the offensive coach, you know, I'm probably more of a skill guy. I, uh, I wanted guys that were skilled and guys that I felt like could really contribute to the offense that way. Um, that, that understood lacrosse that had a good IQ and that brought kind of that slick and savvy where you say, okay, this guy can, you know, help our offense.
0: It's like a package of things, right? You know, so you need different packages and you kind of want to, as a recruit, be the best package of what you do well, that you can be.
1: Yeah. And, and there's no one size fits all. And I would say even at the top level of college coaches, um, there's still a lot of guys that fall through the cracks and there's a lot of guys that don't end up being as good or end up being better than, than maybe they were predicted to be. And I don't think anybody has a has a crystal ball. Um, you look at the NFL, they draft guys that are through puberty, <laughs> through college, yeah. have already developed, have played at a competitively high football level, and they draft them like... Six months, three months, uh, whatever it is, after they get done playing their college games, and they're with full evaluations, health, you know, everything evaluations, and they're still wrong all the time. Right? Um, you know, nobody took Tom Brady until what round? Um, you know, for us to for college coaches to try to guess um, two years in advance on kids that are beginning, uh you know, puberty that haven't developed yet that. You know, have a ton of growing to go without really getting to know them, their work ethic, what type of people they are. Um, it's it, it's tough. It's not easy, and all you can do as a recruiter is put your best foot forward. Um, you know, and try to be that you know best package you can, and that's you know, and then you know, everyone there's a spot for everyone, and find a spot.
0: Yeah. Um, how did you evaluate? IQ, because we were talking earlier about, you know, you recruit all these things and then your smartest guys play, but how did you recruit that?
1: It's a hard thing to recruit, right? It, it really is. Um, and, and you have to have the skills and the ability to go with the IQ. You could see it some in vision, guys that have their heads up, guys that see the field, guys that understand slides in advance. You can see a little bit with field sense that way. The um, Stanwicks were an example of that. I think um, okay. you could see recruiting that they, you know, had a good feel and a good understanding. Um, Guys that talk in the ride, guys that talk while they're playing, um, you know, guys that understand, you know, matchups, even at the younger levels, Um, those types of things, I think helped um, a lot. Um, And and you could see, you know, who the field generals were and who the leaders are, just in how they talk and how they play. Um, So I think that's something that shows through. Uh, You can find out a lot in conversations. That's the part that I loved about the conversations is some guys were complete lax rats and they'd be asking all the questions and about this guy and this offense and that. And you could start to figure out who had a good athletic IQ that way as well.
0: Yeah, really interesting um, to have those lacrosse IQ types of conversations um, in, in the recruiting. I find I do a lot of Zoom calls with the athletes I work with and it's pretty amazing over the course of time how, how they learn how to speak the language. And it's probably a lot like your seniors versus your freshmen who've come in to watch film with you on a regular basis. What a difference does that make for them when they come in and watch a lot of film?
1: Oh, that's so, de- it, it's huge. It is huge to be able to speak the same language. And, you know, I, I can go back to some guys and, you know, whether it's Jake Byrne and Kevin Huntley or whether, you know, Kyle Wharton, Chris Boland, Stephen Boyle, Mark Bryan, um, you know, the Stanwix, obviously there's guys, Ryan Brown, that even from the beginning, you speak the same language and that's huge. And that's really nice. Um, you know, and then there's some guys that kind of pick it up as, as they go along. And by the end they really are. And it's such an advantage. And, you know, John Crawley does a great job at Lehigh now. Um, you know, he, he's a really good example of that. Um you know and we speak a lot of the same language now and uh, and it was awesome to get to work with him and get to coach him and kind of watch his development because he really worked hard and he turned himself into an excellent player um and you know being, being able to watch him develop and being able to speak the same language as him and you know kind of wa- watch him take control on the field as he was a junior and senior was something that was really
0: cool awesome well, Bobby, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Uh, awesome to talk lacrosse with you. Fired up to be working with you, and I'm really excited for people to get a chance to hear more from you.
1: Thanks for having me. I am, uh, I was really excited to be on the podcast, and I can't wait to get involved a little bit with the JM3 athletes and coaches as well.
0: Let's do it. Have a great day. Thanks for having me. Thanks, buddy. All right, so, uh